you're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Darby. In this episode, we revisit our ODG series, and I'm very pleased to welcome friend of the pod, Ali McIntosh, to the show today to explore some of the life and times of Eddie Hackett. When thinking about the Lynx courses of Ireland and Great Britain, we must remember that for the 50 years following on from Mackenzie Ross's World War, post-World War II renovation of Turnbury, the only people that designed and built new Lynx courses were Eddie Hackett and Pat Ruddy. In addition to building Lynx courses such as Connemara, Waterville, Enniscrown, Donegal, Carn and Dingle, Hackett would also assist in the spread and democratisation of the game throughout Ireland through his design or revision of over a hundred golf courses. We look at the Hackett design style and the constraints that many of his projects had. We also take a look at some of the revisions that have been made to his Lynx courses over more recent times. Ali McIntosh is currently the consulting architect at Hackett's Opus, namely Kern Golf Links in Belmullet, County Mayo, where he designed the Kilmore 9, which opened for play in 2018. The Kilmore is open every other day as a composite 18 known as the Wild Atlantic Dunes course, which combines with the original Hackett back nine. If you've not been to Kern Golf Links, Enniscrown, Merva, Connemara or Waterville, you really need to rectify that. Many thanks to, your, to Ali for his time. We really do hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Ali. You're very welcome once again to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. A third timer. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Shane. It's good to be back as well, talking about something different. Yeah, it's, as I said, it's, it's a while you've been on, since you've been on the pod. I know you've recently returned from your first golf trip, trip to the Liverpool area. How'd it go? Where'd you play? How did, what, did you glean any noticeable takeaways from the trip? That was good, yeah. It was great. It was a big gap in my uh, my golfing CV and G- GB&I in Great Britain and Ireland, I suppose, was um, was the northwest of England. So I saw Birkdale, I saw Lytham, which are obviously fantastic, and I, I really wanted to see Formby and Hillside as well. And then I had Delamere Forest, which was a which was a kind of un, you know a, a surprise add-on and was fantastic for an inland course. Really surprised me. You know the topography there was magnificent. So it was a it was a great trip. Five different kinds of golf courses. Did you get some half decent weather? Some half decent. We had a lovely day. We had a lovely thirty-six hole day with Delamere and Formby playing Formby into the evening. That was great. Uh, we had some drizzle at Birkdale, which was unfortunate, but it was you know the course more than makes up for the drizzle. That's for sure. Well, glad to hear you enjoyed yourself. Uh, look, we'll undoubtedly touch upon some of the work you've recently been undertaking at Cairn and Strand Hill. However, obviously, our main event this evening is a dive into the life and times of Eddie Hackett. He appears to have had two distinct careers in golf, initially as apprentice to a master club builder, a teacher, head professional, and indeed a golf pro for hire. For the purposes of the episode, we are specifically interested in the later part of his working life. However, you might provide us with some introductory remark- remarks on Hackett's early years. Yeah, sure. No problem. Well, he was born in Dublin in, in 1910. He wasn't really from an affluent background, and he spent a lot of his childhood in ill health, really. But he, he became a member of Hermitage Golf Club in 1927, so he started playing golf 
maybe earlier than that, but he joined Hermitage when he was 17. And he turned pro, he says, uh, in 1932 on advice of his surgeon to take up an outdoor life. He was only playing off a five handicap at the time, actually, when he turned pro. So as you know well, Shane, he, he spent two years as assistant to Fred Smith at Royal Dublin, your own course. He went over to Johannesburg for a while and was assistant pro there for a, a couple of years. Then he came back to Elm Park and he, he took up a professional position in Elm Park from 36 to 39. And then he successfully applied for the job, uh, the professional job in Port Marnock in 1939. And he he spent 11 happy years there. Um, in his own words, he was very happy in Port Marnock and remained very attached to Port Marnock until he uh, he died. Um, but he'd settled in there just when World War II broke out. So there was a few hard years. Um, of course, he made friends with many people there. Played a lot of amateurs. Played a lot of golf with the, the the great amateurs of the time: Joe Carr, Jimmy Bruin, Cecil Ewing. Became friends with Guppy Cairns, who was kind of Port Marnock um, head honcho at the time, and did a bit of design work there himself in the twenties. Um, and then he then he moved out of golf in nineteen fifty for a while. He was helping his brother in his brother's business. And he himself, Hackett, contracted meningitis in 1954 and, and spent 10 months in Klonsky Hospital. Um, and coming out of that, he actually bought a tobacconist shop, thinking that his golfing days were, were over. So he ran a tobacconist shop for about seven years. But he sold the shop in the early 60s to become a travelling pro. So he, he said, you know, that golf was, as you can imagine, golf was calling him still. Um, and he, he became a traveling pro and started giving lessons. I don't know if it was for the GUI or just on his own on his own back, but he started giving lessons around the country in the early 60s. So that was kind of his life up until he first got the call to, to design a golf course. I know there's an interesting story as to how Eddie first got involved in golf course architecture. You might just share it with us. Well, at the time when he was, when he was walk, traveling around the country as a traveling pro, you know, Bill Menton was the secretary of the, the golfing union at that time, and he was a good friend of, of Eddie's. And he, he just phoned him out of the blue to say that Malahide needed an architect to advise if land was suitable to extend the course to 18 holes. Malahide at the time, it's moved, of course, since. And, you know, Hackett, in his inimitable way, kind of said, I'm not your man. I know nothing about golf design. You know, and, and Menton apparently just said, look, you're long enough in the game to know how. And that was that. So he had recommended Hackett to, to Malahide. And then um, Hackett gave it a go. You know, he gave it a go with Malahide. And that was his that was his first job. And he went from there. Actually, his next couple of jobs were, were easier, he says, because they were just small, private, nine-hole courses with Rockwell College down in Tipperary and, and Clongo's Wood College. So relatively straightforward, rudimentary golf courses. And he did a lot of coaching with this, those schools and, and other schools as well. Internationally, obviously, Hackett is best known for his many Lynx golf courses that are dotted around the wide Atlantic Way on the western seaboard of Ireland. I think maybe as a starting point, you might summarise what best defines Hackett's designs and how his approach differed from what maybe we see today? I think his approach, it followed necessity in some way because there wasn't much money in, in Ireland at the time. What Hackett says is he became lucky in many ways, right? Bill Menton had phoned him up 
but the Irish golf boom had happened post World War Two, so you had things like um, Jimmy Bruin winning the amateur at Birkdale in '46, Fred Daly winning the 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 Open, the British Open in in, in Hoy Lake in 1947. You had a bunch of the great amateurs. We just mentioned a few of them making the Walker Cup team. Harry Bradshaw coming second in the Open. So all of this kind of stuff was really causing a boom and a little bit more affluence in the country as well, causing a boom in in golf through the late 40s and the 50s. It came, I think, to a conclusion in 1960 when the Canada Canada Cup, or the World Cup as it became known, and Sam Snead and Arnold Palmer came to Port Marnock on a really sunny, gorgeous weekend, and and it kind of really clicked with the public at at that time. He... There had only at the time there were two hundred and twelve clubs affiliated with the with GUI, and there'd only been twenty two built in the previous thirty years. So it was quite obvious that a whole bunch of courses needed to be built to to keep up with the demand. And there still wasn't a huge amount of money. So his design style, in some ways, was necessarily following low budget builds. But he's got he's got his own. Um, preferences. There's no doubt about it. Like he he builds long golf courses, or he built long golf courses. When we touch on all of the the various links courses he did down the west western seaboard, you'll find that they're all over, or most of them are over seven thousand yards. At a time forty or fifty years ago, where the open courses weren't over seven thousand. I always remember when I was growing up, Carnoustie was the only one over seven thousand, and it was the it was the beast, you know. But he, he designed Waterville, Ennis Crone, Donegal, Merva was 7,300 yards and for many, many years was the longest course in, in Great Britain and Ireland. So he designed long golf courses where he could. He was, after all, a professional golfer and, you know, that suited him. He he worked on low budget, so he didn't like touching the the land uh, a huge amount anyway. He, he always felt that it would disrupt the soil profile you had to work with what was given you. And I think, you know, that's something that we need to always consider now and live by. He really was the true a true minimalist. He didn't really like blind shots, but because he didn't disrupt the land too much, he ended up with some blind shots. But he raised his green sites up. You'll know in quite a few of his golf courses that he's got kind of plateau greens or up on ledges, and that, that was to get visibility. His bunkering wasn't particularly strategic. They tended to be there, put there as targets more than anything. Um, to show you the way, um, but he, he really was natural in the way he rooted his golf courses, and he, he's he's rooted some fantastic golf holes. And because he doesn't do much with the land, he wasn't afraid to move dunes where he had the money and where they had the, the time and where he had to. But because he hasn't done much and he hasn't stripped all the soil off, um, his courses really do feel like they're 100, 150 years old. You know, they really are undateable, I guess. Maybe if we take a look at Connemara, 1973, Connemara Golf Links near Clifton and County Galway. It's probably as yeah. good a place to start to begin our focus on some specific projects. Yeah, I think so. I think spe- specifically because it, it really was the initial low-budget West of Ireland Links course build. It was generated by Father Peter Waldron, who who graduated from Maynooth College in 1968 and was posted to Clifton, um, and you know there was a, at the time there was poor economy, 
it was poor farming land. As we know in Connemara, you've got all of these Connemara, the Connemara rock and, and boulder boulders there. The fishing industry was dying a bit. Tourism was in its infancy. And Waldron was a keen golfer. So he was like, he was there the end of the end of Connemara, the West Coast, nothing much to do with himself other than his vocation. And he, he started looking around for a suitable site. You know, and in, in June 1969, he wandered down that Balakneely Road and he saw that great prairie. I'm not sure it's a macker landscape, but it's like a macker landscape um, down there where it's just acres and miles and miles of kind of great subtle lynx land probably being grazed i imagine so you can see the 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 you know you can see the the movement in the land and he saw and he knew immediately he'd found the spot that he wanted to build the golf course so he joined forces with local businessmen he led negotiations with 22 landowners for for that area you know it was owned by 22 landowners um and then you know Given that Eddie Hackett had been building one or two golf courses before then, he was kind of the natural guy to go to. And that was really in 1972 when they were building the, the course. They, they used Joe Clark, who was a local builder, to do some of the landscaping for £365. That was Joe Clark's initial fee, 365 And then they got the clubhouse built. Apparently it was a little bit of a hatchet job. And, you know, the first clubhouse had a, a rock that stuck one of those Connemara boulders that stuck up through the floor of the bar. So they kind of built it around a huge boulder. But anyway, the community made it happen and they made it happen with no government grant, which was a huge thing because it was a poor community at the time. And they were up and running, as you say, by 1973. So that was, um, you know, that was a, a real plus for the economy, plus for the community. And it was real, it really showed a, a kind of can do attitude for everyone local just getting behind it. I have to admit that Connemara is a black spot. I haven't been there myself. So I have heard that there's a great back nine. Uh, I know there's 27 holes there. How would you, uh, how would you, I, I have actually heard as well that, that the third nine may be a little bit cramped for space. Yeah, it is. It's not the same quality. There's a few reasons. They've made a couple of changes to that over the years. In fact, Hackett. So, the, if we start with the main 18, the back nine is superb, especially as you come around 12 onwards. It's just a, a great, great finish. The landscape is subtle in so much as it's over this kind of prairie, you know, fescue landscape. It's got the boulders all over the place, Connemara Rock. And he Eddie Hackett was particularly proud, you know, of the fact that they never had to move a single rock. So he repeated that a few times. They never moved one rock as he rooted in and around all of it. But it adds immeasurably to the the kind of feel of the place. You know, you feel, you have that Connemara feel out on the golf course as well. The back nine itself is is superb. 12 goes up the hill. 13 is this wonderful long par three across a, a kind of ravine almost into the side of a hill. And then 14, 17 and 18 are all par fives and all very different to each other. And, and cracking holes. Hackett then did come, so that was 73, Hackett then did come back and um, started on that third nine in 1995. So he was still rolling around the, the fields in 1995 trying to route it. I think he started with three three holes on the, on the coast line 
And that's something the main 18 doesn't do. It doesn't go right next to the coastline. So that was a huge addition. But I, I think there's only two there now. And I think the second one was short, shortened as well. So I think there must have been some changes or some safety issues with the, the road that's running down to the beach there. But anyway, as Hackett never got to finish it because, you know, he died and, and Pat Roddy and Tom Craddock came in and finished it. Uh, maybe if we take a look at Hackett's work at Waterville, also in the early 70s, I think it took place around the same time as the Connemara Project. However, it does not seem to have had many of the constraints that a typical Hackett project would have had to contend with, i.e. it had a few quid. It did have a few. Yeah, it's almost as opposite as you can get. I mean, we're not talking huge budget J.P. McManus at Adair here, you know, but we're talking, you know, in the context of the time, Waterville was, had the budget. Maybe it didn't initially have the budget. I think the, the history with Waterville, of course, was that... Um, you know, as you know, Shane, it was play, there was golf played there from 1889 with the Transatlantic Commercial Cable Company, um, and they were kind of dotting around. And as as that started to die around the Second World War, um, as a company, golf itself went on the decline. And I think the golf course remained, but um, it was hardly played or hardly used. Then Jack Mulcahy, who was a, an Irish American millionaire from the chemical business, came back to Ireland from America in the 1960s uh, and he bought the, the the main Waterville estate there in 1968 which had well-known fishing rights and he apparently was a a kind of kind of you know man about town he knew a lot of American movie stars sports stars all the rest of it Charlie Chaplin would go there for his fishing at the at the time um, and you know he bought that estate uh, and he started to to look into developing the golf course but he wasn't at the time, that interested in in developing the golf course, um, but Hackett was brought in. He'd only designed two courses at a time, and and the, the college courses. And Mulcahy, at that time, was was living back in the states or or traveling between. And Hackett was phoning him and reporting to him in the states. But he said there was no real interest from Mulcahy until he came back over, saw the land, saw what Hackett was trying to do. And in Hackett's words, he became mesmerized. So as soon as soon as he came over, he was he, he decided to stay. This is Mokahi now stayed from April to October that summer to supervise. And he became very, very involved. But with all of his celebrity friends, he was saying, this is in 1972, October 72. We're going to open grand opening in 1973. And he was, you know, he told everyone. So there was no going back on it. And Hackett was quite alarmed at this because he had to get the course ready in six months. Um, and it, it needed a bit of a different approach. He'd be, they'd been stripping a lot of the, the, uh, the, the grass off. They'd been moving a fair amount of soil there anyway because there was budget that you talked about. Um, so he had to move quite a lot to get rid of a lot of the dunes. It's quite big dunes in the back. And he'd been doing a lot of work there in those final 12 holes. Um, to, to take dunes down. But he was never going to get it open in six months with all of this open sand there. So he then needed significant money to, to bring in peat turf as, as topsoil to bring that in over the winter to hold down the sand. And that was a kind of different approach for, for Hackett, you know, bringing in exported topsoil um, and having so much area exposed to, to hold down and to try and grow in again, as opposed to just mowing out that he did with a lot of his other links courses so that was it that was the history really with waterville definitely more money there and, and did that approach 
I, mean, I know you weren't around back then, but uh, or certainly not in Waterville anyway. Um, did that approach affect the playability, do you think, near your early days? I mean, if they're bringing in topsoil and the Lynx golf course, that sounds say, like pretty I'd heavy, 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 heavy soil introduced. I'd say it did, yeah. Uh, it, it has to. Again, if you go back to what I said at the beginning where, you know, Hackett himself said he didn't like to disturb the, the soil profile. And when you're dealing with sand dunes, fescue landscape, it's always the best way. In fact, you could you could argue it's almost the best way on 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 any landscape. Um, it's a lot harder inland when you've got to when you've got to build drainage into it. But once you once you disrupt the soil profile, you are disrupting the, the natural drainage as well. And so, bringing in external topsoil or turf or sod or whatever um, always takes well it can take a long time before it, it really feels and, and knits in properly with the with the natural subsoil you know so it can affect it. you mentioned there that they used quite a bit of machinery to mow down the dunescape there in relation to just lowering the profile and, and making it playable well, one thing it's it's 20 odd years since i, I last played waterville the memory i have of it is it's somewhat engineered or feels engineered in a sort of Burkdale sort of way in that the fairways themselves are quite flat. Am I remembering that properly? I, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic golf course on a fantastic piece of land. Um, you could argue that maybe some of the tie-ins aren't as natural into the, into the natural dune land. I don't know if that was, I never actually played it. As the original um, Hackett design, I only played it once. Fazio had done the work down there. Me too. I, I have no notion of the, of the, of the Hackett ver- variant. I mean, I know what Fazio did down there. I can see, like, so you can see the shaping from Fazio around the greens. Hmm. So I don't know, you know, necessarily what was there as as green sites beforehand. I do know Fazio obviously brought in a new sixth and seventh hole. Hackett had this little par three. Um, seventh, I think, before, which I believe was a relatively mundane hole with a little moat or pond, which actually is a bit of a Hackett, um, Hackett staple. He, he seemed to have little ponds around a few of his courses, um, just from a, a drainage point of view. But um, they got rid of that. So I think the Fazio improvements in the routing on six and seven were, by all accounts, were a, a considerable improvement. And the Mass Hall, of course, is that um, that was a Hackett Hall, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was absolutely so. The mass hole was is the twelfth, and um, it comes after Tranquility, which is a long par five eleventh, which a, long, a lot of people state as one of their favourite holes or one of the best holes in Ireland. But the mass hole is um, a par three over a chasm to one of these Hackett elevated greens, and it's so named because in the days when maybe. Um, Irish Catholicism was a little bit uh, needing to be pre- practiced um, a little bit more in privacy. Um, the, the 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 chasm was used for for you know ceremonies down there for prayer services. So you know they would they would give mass down in that that chasm. So um, he was adamant, being a religious man, Hackett, that he wouldn't touch anything on that. So all we did was put the green on the other side and uh, have the tees and, you know, nothing has been touched there. Yeah, I seem to remember there's a Liam's Ace and a Mulcahy's Peak as two other uh, hole names. 
Yeah, Mokaki speaks the seventeenth T. So obviously that was Jack Mokaki named that when he was supervising it from that April to October. Um, so yeah, that's the seventeenth T, which is spectacular. I mean, Waterville is a spectacular golf course. There's there's no doubt about it. Great course. Didn't the the, the, the long-standing pro Liam Liam Higgins that Liam's ace is the sixteenth, I believe, 16th, the par four, yeah. and it's named after his hole in one. That's correct, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Uh, as he once once held the uh, the world record for for a long drive back in the seventies, which he 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 hit a ball six hundred and ninety odd yards on uh, the runway at Baldono Aerodrome in Dublin. My head is full of useless information. I didn't know that six ninety yards. Some of them are almost hitting that on grass now. How much how much work did uh, Fazio? do on the golf course you know oh it's significant i think that was about two i moved to ireland in 99 2000 i think it was not long after that wasn't it, it was early 2000s um yeah he, he redesigned well he rerouted six and seven most of the rest of the routings hackets but he completely rejigged the whole course from a strategic from a bunker styling from a reshaping of the greens point of view um not not the mass hole um, so there are there is stuff there. He didn't do he didn't go to town on everything, but there was it was a big job, the Fazio job. Heading a bit north, Donegal, nineteen seventy three, obviously seems to be a pretty bumper year for hacket openings with uh, creations of Connemara, Waterville, and now Donegal. Um, obviously, Pat Ruddy was to revise the uh, Merva layout, and whilst, whilst he's very different, uh, he's obviously Hackett's successor. The best example where where the two of them came together, really, I suppose. Um, you might touch on the differences and similarities initially between Hackett and Ruddy. Yeah, I mean, uh, Donegal itself, I guess, if we start there and I'll move into that again, it was a you know, I suppose a landed gentry estate. It was sold in the late sixties through death duties and the rest. Forestry commission. It was bought by the state. Forestry commission were going to forest it, but you know, they realized that the type of trees that they wanted to put on it, you know, sandy land didn't hold water, didn't suit. Golfers took it, leased the land, and then they brought Hackett in to, to build a golf course in the 70s. Um, and and he built a very long golf course. We mentioned it earlier, 7,300 yards, some super holes, like, again, on a peninsula, really, with the front nine going around the outside and then the um, back nine really, you know, rooting around inside that, that front nine. So the front nine wraps around the, the back nine. It feels like a pretty a pretty square site. Would that be you know, shape, shape-wise? Yeah, I'd need to have a look at it again. Um, it's, you, you go, I suppose the most celebrated holes are five to eight. We could argue the run from five to eleven is is really good, you know. It's a really good run from five to eleven, but five to eight are probably the most. Five to par three, yeah. Yeah, the tier, the yeah. Valley of Tears, I think it's yeah. called. Yeah, the one um, up, the one you play up to the ridge, yeah. That's it, yeah. Small yeah. green, um, which collects in there, um, yeah. That that takes you to the coast, and then the coast kind of comes round on a right angle. So you've got about, I suppose, you've got two sides of a square on the coast. And you're right, the other two sides are, are kind of inland fences. Um, well, one thing that I rem- I'm reminded of the very first time I was there, I wasn't aware you had to go through the pine forest to get there. 
and the reveal yeah. you get when you go out of the pine forest, take a right into the into the, and it just opens up. It's just beautiful, and it's real thick forest, isn't it? Yeah, you can yeah. Tell that was from the forestry commission. It's really yeah. You the blue stack mountains in the background. It's just Galway Bay. Uh, sorry, Galway Bay. Donegal Bay. Donegal Bay. Phenomenal. Yeah, it's super. It's uh, so actually when Pat came in, so I they wanted to bring, I think. Did they want to bring Hackett back in? I don't know, but it was about the mid '90s anyway, and they they wanted to revise it for whatever reason. I can't recall the reasons that they wanted a, a revamp to it. Um, but you know, Hackett passed in in 1996, and and they engaged Pat between '96 and '98 to come in and revise it. And to his to Pat's credit, he, he really did very very little work. If any, actually, to to that celebrated stretch between five and eight, he saw what was there, and he and he left that alone. Um, he came in and he again, and we were talking about Hackett's style not really being overly strategic from a hazard placement point of view. Um, really, they were they tended to be flanking and wing bunkers both at Greens and in the fairway. Pat, um, as we know, also likes that. A long course. He likes a tough course. He designs for the modern golfer, um, and he does bring hazards much more into your line of play. And so one of one of the things he was tasked with in in Donegal was to to maybe bring that element of um, penal penal golf is a, is a bad way of describing it, but um, because it, it can be both strategic and penal, but hazards into the the line of play and to make the course tougher i guess you know probably useful as we're sort of on the theme of Hackett and uh Rudy, we're gonna just jump forward some decade or two and just i want to get a feel for the debt of gratitude really that golfers in general probably owe both eddie hackett and pat ruddy for their efforts at, I guess, making the clubs on the Atlantic seaboard aware that if they had land that they could build on before EU directives came into play in terms of the use of that land. And maybe a little bit of background as to, to, to as I said, the debt of gratitude that we do owe them, because but for their efforts, some of the land that was subsequently built on Predominantly in the nineties, the nineties, I suppose, is when we're talking about. Um, but for the the efforts of Hackett and Ruddy, in all likelihood, some or all of that may not have panned out. So, something we need to actually remind ourselves of is um, that most links courses um, through Great Britain and Ireland were, you know, were built before World War One. There was hardly anything built until Hackett after that time. Um, we had the last course, I think, in Britain built was Turnbury just after World War II. The uh, RAF had taken it through the through the war, and Mackenzie Ross came and completely revamped um, Turnbury in 1947, I think. So between 1947 and our latest kind of... Uh, obsession with you know with the trump course and aberdeen tom doak has been up to st patrick's 
King's Barnes, Castle Stewart. Between uh, 47 and the turn of the, the, the century, I think the only people that built Lynx courses were, were Eddie Hackett and Pat Ruddy. So, yeah. Yeah, so that's the, you know, that's the first thing. And, and they built a lot as well, and that's the thing. So, you know, as a, as a debt of gratitude, that's the, that's, that's the first thing we should consider. They're, they're different people, or they have a different approaches. They have similarities to them, but they've got different approaches, that's for sure. And, you know, of course, Hackett, uh, a lot of the jobs that came to him came because they almost landed on his lap, first of all, or the community was looking for it. He, he always worked for very low, um, low money, low budget. Uh, they didn't have the environmental concerns at the time, so he didn't have to, to deal with that. When Pat started to get involved, um, the environmental concerns were, were coming. Uh, when he bought the land for the European, I think it was his third attempt to, to, to try and develop his own golf course, and he flown around the, the coast and found the best Lynx land to, to build, and, and he built that. Uh, as he moved towards the late 90s, you know, he was he obviously worked up in Ballyliffin with um, Tom Craddock, um, and then he moved into Sandy Hills. And by the mid-90s to late 90s, environmental restrictions were, were coming. And Pat, probably, I think it's fair to say, and he probably wouldn't mind me saying, um, you know, is when he wants something, goes after it and has a, a kind of forceful nature about himself. So we definitely owe a debt of gratitude to him and um, or, or golf lovers do anyway in driving certain projects through in the, in the late 90s as well. Um, and we now have, of course, you know, on top of the, the classic links like Port Marnock or La Hinch or, or County Down, Port Rush, Ballybunion, we now have a whole rake of um, slightly more modern Excellent courses, right from Dingle in the southwest up to up to Rossapena and across to Ballyliffin in the in the northwest, and um, designed by Hackett and and Pat Ruddy. So, as golfers, we definitely owe them a, a debt of gratitude. Now we're going to go uh, take a look look at Enniscrown now, another notable Hackett Links course, which uh, is located uh, on the county border between Mayo and Sligo, halfway between Carn and County Sligo Golf Club. Maybe just by way of a little bit of historical introduction to Ennis Crown, uh, golf formally began, it can be traced back to about 1918. However, not until 1931 was the club established and a nine-hole course laid out at Bartra in 1931. By 69, the members began looking longingly at the dunes and Eddie Hackett was approached to extend the course to 18 holes. What can you tell us about this particular project? Yeah, so there was the nine holes there before when he, but you know, effectively he both extended to eighteen and completely revamped the nine that was uh, there or some of those holes. So it was a brand new eighteen hole golf course again. We're talking about the early seventies. Enniscrone, for those who know it, for the listeners who know it, and yourself, Shane, you ha- you have the relatively flat land at the or the very flat land that the, the now um third nine is on uh, and some of eddie's holes were in that land so notoriously it started with two very mundane and long par fives just to get away from where the clubhouse is um out towards the dune land so again for those who've played it 
um, Eddie's course would have gone one two, which were the mundane par fives, which are now incorporated in the in the third nine, um, and then he would have gone to the current sixth hole uh, as his third, and he would have played six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen, and then rejoined at, at five at the current five. So they were all his golf holes and great holes as well. Uh, and there were a couple more holes as you came around to, to 15 green, kind of took you back to the, the clubhouse again. And two of those holes are very good and have been incorporated into the third nine. Um, and then the current first is the 16th and 17 and 18 finish, finish in the same way. So 12, 12, 12 of Hackett. So I know we, I guess moving on, maybe it was your next question, but you know, Hackett's course has been renovated um, since uh, or redesigned since by Donald Steele, where he added six new golf holes into the dunes. So in, in the current Ennis Crone course, there are 12 of Hackett's holes and six of Donald Steele, or Martin Ebert, who was working for Donald Steele at the time, his holes. And favourite holes in uh, Ennis Crone, Ali? Oh, it's good. Or holes of note, maybe? Holes of note. If we take the Hackett holes, first of all, everyone loves it. There's a, the 12, 13 which are two short par fours, one going up the hill to a plateau green, which I, I think is not the greatest hole. It's it's in great land. It's not the one across the chasm. Yeah, you kind of dogleg left. If you haven't played it before, you can actually run out without realising where you're going off your, off your tee shot. And then you go up to this plateau green, which is surrounded or backed by the huge, um, huge dune that they say was a, you know, a Viking burial mound or whatever. And then 13, though, that everyone talks about is the short dog leg down the hill round to the right that has the traffic light that tells you where you can go. So that is blind. You can probably drive that green, but people tend to to say you're stupid trying. You know, just hit down to the corner. I'm currently looking at a, a stroke saver or course planner from 2002. So that's the last time I was there. <laughs> there you go. So 13 is a great hole. Five, five was actually the green was changed by steel, but that, it, it's a really good strategic hole. Um, 11 is a brilliant par 3 um, and then 17 is that great par 3 that some people complain about the fact there's a caravan site behind it but put that out of your mind and just look at the par 3 it's a wonderful wonderful par 3 you know I suppose the main event to this conversation really has to be Kern Golf Links um, as the current consulting architect at Kern Golf Links I'm particularly looking forward uh, sorry you are obviously not, not, not me I'm particularly looking forward to this part of the Hackett story the Golf Links is located some four and a half kilometers from the center of downtown Belmullet, next up New York, on the wild west coast of County Mayo. The pilgrimage to Cairn Golf Links is often spoken of in the same breath as Lofoten Links, Barn Bugle Dunes, or indeed Royal Dornock. I've not been to Lofoten or Dornock. However, I can attest to the fact that the juice is well worth the squeeze when it comes to venturing to either Belmullet or Bridport. What can you tell us about how golf was brought to the Gaeltacht of Bale on Mortid, which is uh, the Irish for um, the town of Ben Mullet? Glad you said that, not me. Um, so, it, in many ways, Carn, you can compare back to the Connemara um, story that we, we talked about earlier. Uh, and in fact, they, they looked to Father Peter Waldron for their choice of, of architect. So, when Hackett was engaged. It was on the advice of of Father Waldron. Um, it's the same kind of story because they had to 
rally the community and rally different landowners. Slightly different, I think, in so much as the Mangum brothers had returned from, or Michael certainly at the time had returned from um, London. They'd been living in the, the UK. Michael had bought a car and a house um, and was part owner, along with 17 other farmers of the common land, right? So there was thousands and thousands of acres of common land that was just shared between landowners. Um, and at the time, the the European there was European funding, I believe, to the Irish government to actually divide up that common land, put barbed wire fences down at all, and give each landowner their little square parcel or parcel of land. And, you know, I think Michael and Liam McAndrew and one or two others, and, and I don't know when Eamon, who I'll talk about in a minute, got involved, but um, they... You know, they saw this dune land there, and they saw the opportunity to bring um, bring people into what was, you know, Eris at the time was was pretty remote. It's still remote, but it was, you know, pretty unvisited or lacking in tourism. Let's put it that way. Part of the country, um, and I think they 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 started Eris Tourism at the time as a not for profit company to to try and bring money and and bring tourism into the area. And their main project, an initial project, was developing this golf course and on the, the common land before it got divvied up, you know. So that was the start of it. That was back in back in the mid mid to late eighties. I think they started actually building in nineteen eighty nine. Um front nine opened in ninety two, back nine opened in ninety five, took a while to, to build it. And it and by this point Eamon was certainly involved. Eamon was Michael's brother. Uh Eamon had a, a huge love and interest in the golf course and, and supervised supervised the build the whole way and, you know, became very close to Eddie Hackett when Eddie was brought in, worked very much hand in hand with, with Eddie and, you know, had his own had his own say in a couple of routing decisions that Eddie made as well. Who built the course? I mean, like I, I, I'm struck by a good friend of mine travelled to Cairn to watch his son compete at the 2018 Connacht Boys Championship. And at the time, he made the comment about some of the blindness inherent in the design, and kind of more, more or less wondered out loud why more had not been done to address some of this unfairness, perhaps at design and build yeah. stage. You might speak to what we mean about low budget in a Hackett context. Like, what equipment did he have at his disposal? What level of expertise did the team of locals have from a course building perspective? I suspect slim to none. Well, none there. I mean, they, I don't know if it was with gover- some kind of government grant or funding or, or whether it was all local raised, but um, they, it must have been with some kind of grant because they had to use local unemployed people to build the course so some of the the laborers came in they were all from an unemployed background to to get the grant i guess um so there were no there was no expertise in building the course Eamon supervised it uh, and Eamon would have had no background in it himself either but he had an inherent and intuitive love of it so that definitely would have helped as as they went along low budget yeah, I mean, they would have had a couple of machines, there's no doubt about it. Um, but we, we, you know, when we talk about the third nine in a in a, in a second, we we built it in exactly the same way as Hackett did. 
amazingly, you know, for a for a modern build. We built it in exactly the same way. And I can attest to the fact that you cannot move a lot of earth very quickly with one excavator and a six-ton dumper truck. And you certainly cannot move a lot at Karn because for those who haven't been there, there are no dunes like it. The scale of the dunes, they are enormous. And we might spend two to three weeks having to do a bit of, and I was always very conscious of, of suggesting something because I knew it would take two to three weeks to move the, the soil. And you'd, and for to the to the layman's eye, you'd hardly notice anything was done. What's the range of height? I mean, in terms of highest point, the lowest point approximately. I think it's 42 meters is the highest dune. So, okay. which is, which is huge, you know, but, but as you know, Shane, um, it might be 44, 42, 44, but as you know, like, it, that's that's the landscape right through it. You see some golf courses. I don't think you see anywhere apart from that uh, burial mound that I just talked about in Enniskroen that's 42 or 44 metres high. But there are no courses where you have huge dunes right through them. If the front nine at Port Stewart, it gets a little bit more mundane in the back nine. But this is huge stuff. You know, even Trump and his greatest dunes of Scotland or whatever he called them, you know, they're not as big as the ones in Carn. It's only some people are saying that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or many yeah. people. <laughs> uh, look, this might be a good time to start talking about your work, Karen. I think, with, had Eddie planned a second 18 before he passed away? Yeah. You might move into sort of obviously Jim Eng and, and then you, yourself and, uh, and, uh, and the Kilmore Nine. Yeah. So, Eddie, this is a kind of, in fact, I wonder if I can get you a copy of the, the layout because it's um, it wouldn't be well well seen. But um, Eddie died in October 1996, and just two or three months later was his la- or earlier, sorry, was his last visit to Carn. And by that point, he he wasn't able to get himself around the dunes again. So he sat in the clubhouse and he sketched out from memory a plan to try and get another 18 onto the land. There's 280 acres there, which isn't much for 36 holes, and it certainly isn't much when you've got huge dunes to, to navigate in and between. Um, now, in reality, he was digging up half of his original 18 to do it, and it, it didn't work. It really didn't work, you know. Um, but there was a desire there and it, to, to, to build more golf holes because they knew there was land fantastic land that hadn't been used so that was 1996 how it then moved into actually happening i'm less sure but it wasn't long after because jim eng or eng i'm never sure myself it's eng i think uh who is a or is a very well-known american architect um and had fallen in love with karn had joined as a as a life member um, and had volunteered his services, uh, I would say, in 2004, because his initial routing, which I've seen, went in for a kind of planning in 2004. Now, at this stage, we're down to nine holes, because 18 holes never never work. You're never going to get 36 holes on that land. Um, so his initial routing went in in 2004, completely different to what's there now, but between 2004 and 2007, some of those holes in skeleton form got changed. Um, 
by agreement between Eamon, I guess, and and Jim himself. Um, and there was a little bit of construction work done, you know, a little bit of uh, working, uh, seeding on some of those holes to 2007. And then I think there was just a, a halt, maybe a parting of ways um, or a misalignment with, with how to how to proceed. And, and the thing stopped in 2007. Did you get to use any of the skeletal remains for the Kilmer? Yeah. Yeah, well, absolutely. So, uh, like, I was fortunate. So, uh, you know, I, I came down in 2010 um, rating the course. You know, I was there on behalf of a magazine, and it was the first time I'd seen the course. Uh, and I spoke to Eamon, and I said, I, I believe, you know, there was an intent to do a, a third nine. Um, would you mind walking me around the land of where the third nine's going to go? And he was delighted to do that. And um, he, uh, you know, he kind of let me know that actually nothing had happened. It stalled for three years. We seemed to hit it off. And I think it, you know, it got him interested in going again to, to partner up with, with me. And we we got going again, you know, so between 2010 and 2013. And I I, I knew because there'd been some work done and because it was low budget, I, I didn't have license to come in and completely tear everything up and start from afresh. But I did say to Eamon, you know, give me two or three months to, to just look at the routing and to make sure that we get the best routing there. And if I'd thought that there was... You know, if I thought we needed to tear everything up, I would have said it. But I knew that it was probably not, there was no appetite for that. So um, when we did it, I, you know, th there were some new holes that I added in to try and reduce the 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 walking because there is quite a lot of um, up and down walking because of the elevation change. So I wanted to stay high up on the ridge. We put a new, you know, we completely rejigged the, the, the routing of the second half of the first hole. The second hole in the Kilmore was a completely new par three to stay high up on the ridge, and then the third would come down in a different way. So these kind of changes were were added in just to get the the, the best routing. But you could probably say the routing's a mix of Eng, Eamon, and my myself from a skeleton point of view, definitely. Am I right in saying that that was your first uh, that was your first solid design, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I which was lucky, right? Because I I came to golf design slightly later in later in life. Not not late. I'm not that old, but um, later, uh, and I came out of my kind of education in it in 2009, just when everyone had stopped building golf courses. So you know, mm -hmm. to have links land in 2010, 2011 as as my first project was a total dream come true. I think if other architects had known that they'd really stopped at Carn, there'd have been a lot of them knocking on the door, you know. So it was you, Jim, and some greenkeepers. Was that about the height of it? Myself. So this is a different Jim now, right? So you've you've myself, um well the the course was built. Like I talk about Eamon, right? Uh, who was the director there um and supervised the work so he was a director of Meris tourism um raymond sat on that dumper all day every day for years you know he built the golf course with patrick o'connor um who's a machine operator down there on the green staff gary stanley was the head greenkeeper my partner 
and myself, right? I'd be down and building it as well. Uh, and then my partner Jim, James Coughlin, who's a who comes, who's an Irishman living in Germany at the moment. Um, he came in to shave some of the greens up. So he, he's more German than Irish. Though, <laughs> you, might, you might say that, yeah. <laughs> but Jim came in. He was probably only ten or twelve days on site, but he came in to to shape some of the greens up. Yeah. The club's recently created a composite course that features both Hackett and Macintosh holes, known as the Wild Atlantic Dunes Court. Yeah. Can you tell us uh, why they made the decision and how visitors can ensure that they play the Wild Atlantic Dunes course? Do they all, I mean, think they alternate between setups or what was yeah. So they've three, they've 27 holes now. Um, there was the original Hackett 18, and then there was the Kilmore 9. And, you know, Eamon's vision, and Eamon, Eamon stepped back now, and, and we, we've got Jerry, uh, Jerry Maguire and Fiona Toha run the, run the golf operation really successfully and, and very well down there. And, you know, they're really bringing it on, which is great. Uh, Eamon himself has, has stepped back now. But, um, you know, Eamon and myself talked a lot. Um, I think Eamon's vision was always that, that, you know, the new nine, which went through. So to, for the listeners, again, especially those who haven't been there, the old Hackett front nine was on the slightly tamer land. And then the back nine goes into, to, I mean, it's not tame by most other course standards, but the back nine goes into this unbelievable dunescape as it moves down towards the sea. Um, and the third nine, the Kilmore nine, is rooted through that same unbelievable landscape. So I think the feeling was always that there would be no more spectacular golf course in the world in many ways, you know, if you combine the, the new nine with the um, the original back nine. And what I had suggested at the time was that we can intertwine those holes to, to, to stop a couple of awkward crossovers. So, you know, you don't just play one nine and the other. You have those two nines intertwined from a sequencing point of view and it, it stops where you had to cross over the other the other nine or the other course, um, and it becomes much more of a natural flow. So that's what they have now. We opened the Kilmore in 2013, but again, due to low oper- you know, low budget, um, bad time in the Irish economy, uh, they didn't really bring it on, grow it in for years. So it's only when they brought the conditioning up to the standard of the the existing 18 in. 2019, that we could actually introduce this Wild Atlantic Dunes golf course. And now that is, certainly from a visitor point of view, the primary the primary golf course. Um, uh, and that's the, the way they it seems to be what the visitors want to see, want, what they want to play. Um, and it's the, it's the golf course that they now are, are looking for people to, I guess, rate and, and rank. But there's a lot of affinity with that original Hackett 18 as well. So so they alternate the course. They they just played one day Hackett, one day Wild Atlantic Dunes, one day Hackett, one day Wild Atlantic Dunes. And part of the reason there is for visitors into the region, try and get them to stay overnight, spend a bit of money in the town, um, in one of the two nice hotels there, uh, play Hackett one day, play Wild Atlantic Dunes the next. So that's the intent. You were down there uh, over the winter doing a bit of work on the new putting green and uh, the, I guess, the tea pad area behind the clubhouse. 
you'd uh, some 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 interloper t- dumper truck driver as well annoying you for twenty four hours. That's or right, so. yeah. I hope I wasn't too much of a hindrance. The name of Darby. It was a good photograph of you there on that dumper. No, you were a great help. We needed uh, we needed that extra dumper driver at that time. Um, so thank you again for for coming down and and helping out. Yeah, it was great. It was great to get back down. So again, we finished the course in 2013. We had other plans, but they were all put on the back burner. And one of those plans was because we now have three nines uh, effectively leaving from the same space, it was quite tight and it still will remain relatively tight getting out of there. But the logistics and the flow um, were confusing for people. Um, So, and plus, plus it, it never looked natural really they were they were kind of these tea pods that were just sitting there and we had a tiny little practice pot in green so the the plan was always to redesign and, and reshape that whole area so we did all three tea complexes we tripled the size of the the practice green softened the whole thing off so you can you can flow directly from the green into the first tea um, and it just makes it much more attractive and and natural in the way that you uh you move to the first tee and move on to the golf course. What's um, what's next? Uh, well, I, a few things I hope. Uh, the great thing was I, that that's been received well. It was the first capital um, capital project we'd really done there for a few years, and we, we always had plans to, to move on. Um, you know, there's, a, there's, there's talk of potentially an alternate, al- alternate par three. I'm not sure whether that will happen or not. Um, we'll wait and see. But in general, what we've been concentrating on is signage, right? So right now we've just got new signage up because we were finding that the logistics, and it was it was needed, the logistics of getting people around um, was difficult. People didn't know where to go. And that was primarily, partly because of the, the big dunescape, but primarily because you, you have two golf courses there which share nine holes. So, you know, they have different numbers depending on which golf course you're on. So people are getting confused by the names Hackett, Wild Atlantic Dunes, Kilmore. Kilmore as a name has been retired, really. You've just got the Hackett 18 or the Wild Atlantic Dunes 18. So we've been working on signage. We will probably work on um, paths. Uh, we would love to keep grass paths in most areas, but it's very difficult when you can't irrigate them. Um, so we'll keep grass paths wherever we can, and there'll probably be some hard paths put in on, on, on some areas. So we'll need to work on that. Um, and again, that's about access, egress, logistics, safety. Um, and then I, I think we'll hopefully, uh, assuming the club want to keep going, move into a little bit of a bunker renovation right through the, the 27. Um, and that'll be replacing, redesigning and, and re placing into different areas some of the, the bunkers just to add a little bit more uh, aesthetic pleasing um, aesthetics into it and also some strategy but I will I will add that we've 27 holes at the moment we've 37 bunkers through the 27 holes the place doesn't need many the dunes and the topography do all the work so we won't be we won't be adding too many bunkers it'll just be a few in the right places looking the right way it's a pretty windy site there. It must, um, yeah. You must suffer from some savage wind erosion of the of the bunkers. Yeah, and that's the difficulty, you know. So we work generally with a, a fairly um, pot style or a vetted style. There's only so much 
artistry you can put into them because you can't build huge, big sand, um, natural bunkers because they'll erode very, very quickly. Unless you're happy to see them erode and to see... So in certain areas, you can do that and, and, and let nature take its course. Why not? That's the way it should be. And as you know, there's a few... We, we deliberately, or I deliberately, left open blowouts next to the 14th Green and the Wild Atlantic Dunes, which was the second Kilmore. That's the part three, yeah, with yeah. Kevin Markham's favourite hole. Yeah, it is. It's a great hole, really, if I do say so, so myself. you know. You, it, it is. No, I, I, rather than, you're not blowing your own trumpet there. It's uh, spectacular. In fact, I'm going to get a picture of it, and it may well be the feature picture for the episode. You, you tee off. We left a... We left a shoulder there, which makes it semi semi blind green. Um, we could easily have taken the shoulder down, but I think it would have taken some character away. So it, it leaves you this; it kind of teases you a little bit. So w- the other thing it does is it hides this huge sand blowout just to the right of the the green, which you shouldn't find yourself in. But as you come up uh, and into the kind of green site, which is an amphitheater, you see this fantastic open sand blew out to the right and then we, we tied that down into a more formalized formalized bunker so it's um yeah it's a good good hole the Kilmore has to be seen to be believed and I, I you were kind enough to walk me around it last November and uh, I didn't get back out to play it but uh, it needs to be on everybody's bucket list if they haven't got down there the, the amazing thing with the Wild Atlantic Dunes is I, I'm sure you'll have some traditionalists who just think it's too much the dunes are too much but if you go down there with a, a an open mind and if you take golf for what it's supposed to be which is just enjoyment and fun you know go out and enjoy yourself um there is no the, the 18 holes are completely different to one another in fact you could say the 27 holes are completely different to one another there you go to many golf courses and there are bits that suddenly let you down you know, you've gone through the exciting bit and then you go through a, a period of calm, which is sometimes needed, uh, or an area where, well, that bit wasn't quite as good. doesn't happen in car. You go out and you just keep on going from one piece of drama to the next. And in fact, part of my job was to, to I never had to look for drama. That was there. It was more about playability. So, you know, I had to almost de-dramatize sometimes. Just to chill, try and get it. Chill, chill the fuck out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just to get it playable, you know. So that was that was the trick. It walkable and playable. Yeah. That was yeah. the that was the first thing. I didn't need to go looking for a spectacular golf hole. I could have designed a hundred of them. I'm just interested. How long did it take you to route the nine? I mean, it's as you said, it, it feels like it, it it made you work for it. Yeah, but remember, so a lot of the routing was there. Um, but as I said. I, you know, I wanted to look at it like a blank canvas, first of all, to make sure that we got the best one. So I used quite a bit of what Eamon and Jim from a skeleton had already done, but I wanted to make sure it was the right thing. Yeah. Um, and so from that point of view, you know, it was, I think it was, it was a few, few months into it before I even went down and I had suggested, you know, the whole change of one, two, and three to, to aim and, 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 you know, it was, it was a while before we, we finalized on what the final routing would be or routing. Well, we just, we do have some Australian listeners. It has a, 
has a different connotation down there. Hence the reason I am more, I say routing or routing. Routing is something else down there. Exactly. I'll stick with routing then. Yeah. You're currently working at Strand Hill, which obviously was a commission you got after uh, Kern. Just wondering if Eddie Hackett did any work down there. Now, you would think I would know. You would think they would know. That's the that's more to the point. But I hear conflicting stories. I speak to Jason, who's the head greenkeeper down there. He says, "Oh yeah, no, he definitely, you know, added nine, or he definitely added these holes here." Uh, then I read Richard Finney's book, and Richard had spoken to to Eddie Hackett, and Eddie said he just came in and blessed Martin Nyland's design on three or four of the holes around sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. You know, so. That said, you look at a hole like 15 and you think that, that looks quintessential hacking. So I'm not 100% sure. I'm going to investigate that more, Shane, because it's not that long ago. Someone needs to actually know. What I heard was that the, the really the extension from 9 to 18 was done by the locals, you know, and they just um, they really just designed and built it themselves and then retired to the clubhouse for a few pints every night. And when you say that 15 is quintessentially hackers, what do you mean? Well, I mean it's quintessentially Hackett in it's naturally rooted through big dune land to an elevated kind of shelf green. Um, and Hackett did a lot of those. You could argue the fourth would be the same, but, uh, you know, it just it just feels like a... It doesn't feel like a modern designed links hole. Let's put it that if, way. It feels, it feels like a Hackett designed hole. It okay. probably isn't, but it could be. But that's a compliment, though, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. It's not meant any other way. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were um, you were engaged with by by the club in 2016. 2016. What have you been at since uh, that engagement? So we've done like the club own 70 acres of dune land behind the existing course, which they're not using. Which they're not using, and can't really use okay so um the for those who don't know strand hill it's magnificent it's but it's but it's on 95 acres uh so it's it's wedged in between the atlantic on one side kalinamore bay on the other side the strand so you know two sides of water knocknare that great queen mave mountain um overshadows it on the third side and then on the fourth side there's a huge dune uh, which is called Shelley Valley on the back side of that this great dune on the back side of that so it's got four very distinct um, sides to it which are all fantastic and it's got really cool golf holes really great golf holes in there but a funny quirky mix of some natural stuff some very rudimentary built stuff probably by the, the members in the 80s um and then just some stuff that doesn't work. So, uh, you know, so the first thing I did when I came in was to suggest that we, um, well, the first thing we did was we completely redid the bunker scheme on the course. So they were ugly bunkers. They were in the wrong place. Um, there were 68 of them. We'd taken it down to, to 48 much more artistically designed, much more strategic golf, you know, um, strategically placed and just much more attractive, made a huge difference to it. To it. What else have we been doing? We've also tried to 
widen because it's on 90 acres you've got to try and make it feel as big as possible so we've been widening fairways changing the mowing lines and that's made a huge difference in itself you know taking out a little bit of sometimes taking out a little bit of um, dune land or mounds just to give that better view to, to give a feeling of scale we've been since then we've been redesigning all of the tees the, the uh, we've been bringing some fairways forward um, we're going to do a little bit of green work. What we haven't been able to do, um, and maybe we'll never get to do it, but I hope we do because it, it's a very um, um, sensible plan, is use any of the 69 or 70 acres they've got at the back. My plan had not been to, to go and use a majority of that. It had just been um, at the back of the fourth hole, uh, we go up into a, a kind of dune plateau before it falls down into the, the rest of the 70 acres. And my plan had just been to, to use that plateau. It's about two or three acres. I don't think it's even two or three acres. It's probably one and a half, two acres um, to extend the fourth hole into a par five and then to bring a, a, a brand new par three back. And that would ease out some of the external safety problems that the, the course has. We haven't quite got there yet with National Parks and Wildlife. Um, it's a shame because it's a very, very environmentally sensitive um, and environmentally friendly plan. Um, so maybe one of those days we'll, we'll get there. But as it is, we're just driving on to, to finish stuff on the existing course. Can I get back to Hackett for a moment? I believe he was engaged in some capacity at Rossapena. Yes. Both on what is now the St. Patrick's site that Tom Doak and the renaissance team built upon but also on the other side of the fence with the uh, the cases and perhaps the precursor to pat ruddy's work on sandy hills what can you tell us about that that's correct and not a lot of we'll start with ross because not a lot of people well not that many people probably realize it because it wasn't long in existence but um you had the original Ross of Pena course. So the Casey's bought it in 1881, the land and, and the hotel and developed from there. Uh, and they had the 18-hole golf course there, which which had been designed a little bit of old Tom Morris, or originally by old Tom Morris. Then which, we, which at the time was nine nine in the valley and nine up around the hill. Yeah, right? that's right. Over over the road with those crazy, crazy drives, which I actually did play once back in the early noughties. There you go. Yeah. Bizarre. So you had that, which they now some of those holes are now called the Coast Guard Nine, but um, and that is what brought Hackett in. So the original course, the Valley Nine, was a bit of Old Tom, a bit of Varden and Braid, quite a lot of Harry Colt in there actually, which isn't realised, um, and some great cracking holes in that Valley Nine, and they're still there. Um, but at the time, you had a couple of drives that went over the road, um. Now the course used to play away from the hotel. The pavilion's been the clubhouse have been built since, but the original course played from the the hotel. So you actually had ten holes. You had one coming up from the hotel, and then you played the Valley Nine, which is now the back nine of the old Tom to to their eighteen. So you came round to where the pavilion now is at the tenth green, and then the eleventh headed back across the road up up the hill to the Coast Guard Nine, and they had to get rid of that because there was too much traffic. And if you've been down there since, you would go, that, that's mad that we were hitting golf balls across this road, you know. Um, but there was too much traffic. So they brought Eddie in to build eight new holes, effectively, in 95. So 
you know, again, pretty pretty close to when he died. He was brought in uh, to build eight new holes, and they built them. Uh, so off the current 18th on Old Tom, which is by the pavilion, that was the 10th. And then you went out, for those who know it, the Sandy Hills course is slightly inland from the Valley Nine, but it's up in big, kind of high elevated dunes. So Eddie's holes started out there, the Sandy Hills land, would have been 11, 12, 13, which is kind of along the same route as Pat's first, second and third on the Sandy Hills. And then I think Eddie turned inland again, maybe along the same route as Pat's 15th, I think. And then he came in um, on what is approximately the, the skeleton of 7, 8, 9 of the current old Tom course. Uh, and then the final 18th was a, is long gone, which was a hole which would have connected the ninth green on old Tom back to the hotel. Um, so Eddie's 18 was there and in play for about three or four years, maybe 95 to 99. Um, and then, of course, enter Pat Ruddy, who saw the land. Maybe they'd got Pat in for another reason, but Pat then saw the land um, and, you know, said, well, look, you've got to build 18 here. And then the, the environmental restrictions were coming in as well. Um, so, you know, Pat talked to the cases and convinced, you know, thankfully, Frank to, to build a to build a, a, another 18, which became the Sandy Hills. And then to, to build this nine holes or some of the nine holes that has now become the front nine of the, the old Tom Morris. And the valley nine has become the back nine. And then, of course, obviously across the fence originally was a development for the owner of the Carrigart Hotel, one Dermot Walsh, who developed 36, actually, after he couldn't uh, put uh, a caravan park on the, uh, That's right. which is essentially the end of the valley, I suppose, if you like, over the over the, the barrier den. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, I, I think when when Frank, when the Casey's and Frank Jr., you know, when they bought the Patrick's land, they they'd thought originally about, you know, extending that valley nine out into the St. Patrick's land, you know, before, and I'm sure we'll get to Tom, before Tom came in. And Needless to say, if the Mara McGorgon was a Hackett, yeah? Yeah, well, that's right. But, you know, um, Hackett came in and, or Dermot Walsh would have hired Hackett and, again, it was 95. Um, and Hackett built the first course with Joanne O'Hare helping him. Mm-hmm. Now, and the first course, which I'm not going to pronounce, uh, but you just did, was, is, again, it was another 7,000-yard beast, you know? Um, and uh, and then Joanne herself, who was, I think, assistant pro at Royal County Down, is that correct? She she took the lead on the Tramore course, which was the second course, which was under 6,000 yards, but had some of the best um, the best land, and they put 36 holes there. And I think that's the only Lynx links course anywhere ever designed by a woman and one one and two at least uh bear remarkable resemblance to the current one and two in uh well actually beg, beg your pardon yeah sorry one and the current one and two bear remarkable resemblance to two two of the holes on the Tramore course correct. because they're essentially through the same the same corridor yeah correct yeah it's particularly the second on on tom's course on the, on the current st patrick's course 
is very similar to what was what was there. Clyde scraped a couple of, as we talked about in another podcast, Clyde scraped a couple of bunkers in. They obviously reshaped the green, but the, you know, I don't think they even they didn't even lift the sod on the fairway. That was just mown out. So very very similar. The first goes into the same green site that was there. The orientation of the tee shot is a bit different, and they lowered the the ridge about the landing zone. So they've done a bit of work yeah. on the first, but it's it's pretty similar. Yeah, yeah. For those that haven't listened, uh, I think it's episode four. We do a deep dive with Frank Casey Jr., Ali, and uh, Clyde Johnson, who would have been one of the the lead shapers in the project. And Clyde covers quite uh, extensively the June shoulder surgery that took place on the second to. Uh, to basically knock back the dune and uh, replace the marum and the scraw. Um, quite an interesting conversation if you're into your geekery. Yeah, maybe if we take a look at um, some of the courses that, that Hackett didn't touch, it's interesting in, in prep for this evening when, I mean, he must have been talking to Bally Bunyan and, and uh, Tralee, let's say, but essentially gave them the uh, advice to go down a different avenue with obviously Robert Trent Jones in terms of uh, Bally Bunyan and Arnold Palmer at sea in terms of uh, Tralee. It's amazing, isn't it? Can you imagine a modern day architect uh, being offered a links links commission and saying, ah, you don't want me, you want someone else. You know, I just cannot imagine anyone who would say that now. So, you know, Hackett in his in his I, I guess, humble and um, pious way, you know, s- said to them, if you want to actually earn money out of this, you know, it was coming into the 80s, um, you know, go with these big name American architects and it'll it'll stand you stand you in good stead. So, yeah, he could have designed Ballybunion, Cashin and, and Tralee as well. Um, I hear uh, there might be plans afoot for, for the Cashin. Um, our, our mutual friend, um, I won't name, but you know who I'm talking about, uh, suggested uh, that there was some plans afoot for that. Yeah, I, I believe it all. I don't know too much about it. We'll wait and see what happens. It wouldn't surprise me. No one can stand, seems to want to stand still at the moment, you know, and, and enjoy what they have. They want to keep. Yeah, interest in that, that you've, you've, you've given me a nice sashay into the, into the local news. Um, I know you've recently been casting your eye over the Mackenzie and Ebert proposals for County Louth Golf Club. The members of Baltry are currently considering. Yeah. For listeners that may have missed the news, and as a huge Tom Simpson fan, first of all, I suppose that's important to say, you might tell us about the proposals or what you've seen, the specific revisions, and uh, we might even get something about the merit of the suggestions. But don't feel you have to answer that question. Well, I think you, you have to realise, first of all, that, you know, usually architects are approached by clubs because clubs have a desire to do something. Now, whether that's correct or not is the is the first question. But obviously, Baltray wanted to, to deal with, or County Louth wanted to deal with a couple of issues, um, and they approached Martin Ebert. Um, and so Martin Ebert's responded to that. Um, some of the issues were... I, I think around. Um, I need to. I need to look at the, the brief again. If, but um, some of the issues were, you know, around safety, safety issues. Um, mm-hmm. Particularly, I think they felt that balls were going into the car park from the tenth tee. So, Ebert's dealt with that 
quite well. It it could have been, it could have been dealt with with exactly the same hole uh, and just a slightly slight redesign. But what he's actually done is he's he's flipped over the tenth tees and the first tees, which actually goes back to what what Simpson had designed in the first place. So he's actually I wouldn't call it a restoration, but but his suggestion actually flips the tees over to 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 what Simpson had in the first place. So there's things in there that are um, certainly good suggestions and, and, and warranted and certainly meet the brief that County Lyles were looking for. There are, of course, as you know, what I think, um, I, you know, suggestions that I believe are a step too far and, uh, you know, why. I, I just think we, I think, and I'm, I'm not just talking about County Lyles here, but I think we do, we or... Um, work gets suggested that doesn't need to get suggested quite often all that's needed are a a couple of small things and suddenly we have two or three or four new holes and and greens getting reshaped left right and center and everything getting done and that happens a little bit too much on some of our courses at the moment maybe the clubs want it maybe they maybe their 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 hand is just kind of maybe not forced but uh, they get they get kind of, I, I suppose, they 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 see the the bright lights and they just go with the changes sometimes. But um, I think that we there's too much change on our links courses that isn't needed. Interesting. I mean, you know, in Ireland and the UK, obviously through state-sponsored national trust, our built environment is recognised and protected. In light of that, for building. How important do you think are the specific design elements of courses such as County Louth, Port Marnock, and Royal Port Rush or Ballybunion to the built heritage and history of golf in these islands? I know it's it, it, it that's probably a a you probably don't ever see that a preservation order would go in for a golf club, but I suppose it plays into and I, I'm not trying to point a finger at Baltray as as an example, but do you think? that the members in places like that understand what they have? I'm sure some of them do, and I'm sure a lot of them don't. Um, It's not practical, of course. You know, it's completely idealistic to say that you can put preservation orders or like uh, national monuments on on golf courses. But if you could, Mm -hmm. then, you know, I think you should be picking two or three examples of well-known architects works and and saying well these two or three should be held and and have a higher burden of proof i guess to get over making changes um you said something very interesting to me yesterday on the phone yeah and i think you you want to put something on the record uh, in terms of mr Ruddy. yeah well i what i said to you on the phone is if you had that idealistic situation yeah. then like i would hate to see the european changed Right, so you know, I I'd hate the idea of someone coming in and changing the European. People have different opinions of the European. It's it's a different style of links course, but that doesn't give everyone the right to come in and change it. It's Pat's baby. He's built it. He loves it. I love it, by the way, as well. And you know, if you're gonna put like heritage on golf courses, then let's ensure that one of Pat's courses is kept there relatively untouched. And that's the European. 
So I'd say the same then you go to Simpson. I'd say the same with one or two of Simpson's bits of work or one or two of Colts or Mackenzie's, you know. Um, and that's just the architects. Then there's other reasons that you might want to not touch a golf course. Um, obviously, the old courses in St. Andrews is one where where I think, you know, you should be jumping a higher hurdle to make any changes on that. Sure, you know, and we've spoken previously about creeping homogenization of golf course design. Yeah. Characterized almost maybe by groupthink, and uh, so that no one ever got fired for buying IBM mentality. Yeah. You know, despite the obvious quality of, of 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 the work of the people that I'm talking about, should we be concerned that one design firm seems to be hoovering up many of the current tier one commissions? Yes, but I think even before you get to talking about one design firm, the natural order of things is if you change, you change more towards the conservative. So, in other words, no one no one changes their course and comes in and builds a, a big dune that you can hit a blind shot over or a quirky feature here or there. They they change their course to make it more in line with other courses or championships or this or that. And in itself, with our links courses, bit by bit, that tends to get rid of some of the the, the crinkles and the creases on courses that make them so individual. Um, so I think naturally by committees or by people wanting to change golf courses, they move more and more towards homogenized looking courses. And that's a crying shame on Lynx Golf. Um, and then, uh, and look, you, you know, more power to any design firm that picks up a, a lot of work, but you know, you can only put your attention to, to so much in uh, an impassioned fashion. Um, you can't do that when you've got 30 golf courses on, on the go. And really, all links land is different. You, you should be bringing different solutions to, to different pieces of land. And to do that, you kind of have to understand the land well. And to understand the land well, you have to spend a bit of time with it. So where do you think the future of Link's design is? is? Is it in detailing? Is it is it in is it the cons the conservation approach that you're talking about? I mean, obviously, I know you don't. Uh, I, I know I know sort of golf in general is looking down the barrel of 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 somewhere actually that the that the greenkeeping teams in the, the Netherlands have have already moved to in terms of you know uh, limited or no fungicide, uh, pesticide, and chemical applications. Yeah, I, I, do, you, do we think that the expectation of 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 Uber conditioning is is sustainable, or like no, where I, are we? I, I I don't think so. But you know, well, no, uh, there's going to be challenges in that fashion, of course, because of limits on on the things you talk about. Um, where are we? Where are we going with Links Design? I mean, uh, you you could argue that I sound. A little bit hypocritical here because I'm I'm talking about not changing courses and here I am down in Strand Hill but you know um, it maybe didn't have the design let me put it this way it didn't have the design uh, pedigree that a uh, uh, County Louth has with Tom Simpson or you know a Ross's Point has with 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 Harry Colt um, bringing it back to Hackett we're it's modern design or good modern design is very different in than Hackett's era. You know, Hackett designed, it got built by the locals, part of that was budget, but his eye really wasn't on the detail. 
it was on the big picture of the, the routing. Um, modern, good modern designers now are all over the detail. They're all over the artistry. They're all over the aesthetics and, and how to, to tie landscapes in so that they look very natural. You know that from seeing Tom's work up in, in St. Patrick's. But that is the difference, I think, between great designers on Lynxland now and maybe the past is, is how good they are at building, how good they are at detailing stuff. Um, but the key is to not do too much. So, you know, know what is enough for the, the land, know what is enough for the golf course you're working on, and don't do more. And that, that's the key. It's always the key. Minimalism is, uh, from that point of view, is is the key. And it frustrates me no end when I see more than is necessary being suggested at places. Uh, again, as I said to you yesterday, I, I can't quite believe you've been on the show um, twice already and you haven't got asked the final two questions. So we're, we're going to rectify that before I, I let you tootle off. So please tell us where your five-ish bucket list courses are and why you've chosen them. You can interpret this question however you wish. The number five is only a rough guide to the quantity of courses that you can nominate. God, I didn't even prep for this. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, I wasn't expecting again, or I should have been expecting. But um, are these um, courses that I haven't... Um... You can play it. You can have played them, not played them, whatever. You interpret it however you want. Um, yeah. Okay. You want to go back to the loop, though, maybe as as the first. Yeah, section. that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for thanks for prompting me on stuff I should know yeah, myself. No problem. The no loop. Problem. For for those who don't know the loop, I went there with um, Robin Heisman, my friend Robin, who's an architect, and, and Sean Arbel there in August, and we played the loop. And the loop is a Tom Doak design, uh, and I've seen a few of Tom's courses, but not that many. Um, and it's reversible. So they play the red eighteen one day, the red, the black eighteen the next day. It's a bit like we were talking with the Wild Atlantic Dunes and the, the Hackett, except it's fully reversible. Um and it's on great sandy soil. Um it's pretty tameish landscape, subtle landscape. It's just I I I love the landscape. And the design is superb because even though I knew how good Tom's crew were at building and designing, I didn't expect, I, I really didn't expect to go there and when I'm playing one course, not have any sign whatsoever of it the other way around. I was expecting to see tees hidden for the other course, hidden in the woods or in the forest or whatever. It's not the way. The, the tees are just little pools in the ground, shaped in from the shapers, as flat bits that tie perfectly into the fairways and you wouldn't even know that they're used as a tee on a different day. Um, and then to br bring greens in that you can approach from two different ways. Oh, it was wonderful. So, you know, for me, as a design feat, the loop is, I suppose, the, the, the best I've seen, certainly the best modern design I've seen from a, from a purely design point of view and architectural point of view. Okay, so technically that's two, but we call that one. <laughs> I'm going to struggle now. You're going to have to prompt me on four others. Well, on your well, did any of them come from that that trip? You were where? Where were you? Crystal Downs, Chicago Golf Club. Um, 
Hogwarts you were on the bloody trip. Three. You didn't, you didn't even invite me, so I, how, how, how am I remembering them? Shore Acres was, Shore Acres was sure. um, uh, is a perfect example of Seth Rainer getting the most out of a routing on a site. So relatively flat site, um, but it's got these barrancas or ravines um, running through it. He uses the ravines, I think, on 11 out of the 18 holes. Is that right? I think 11 out of the 18 holes. Yeah. And, he, and he uses them in 11 different ways. So it's an amazing routing to, to use that one major or those major natural features in such a variety of ways. And that's what good routing is, you know, mm-hmm. managing to use those natural features in different ways is always an indicator of a, a, a great route. The same, the same features in different ways yeah. in terms of just sort of stacking them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's fantastic. Yeah, I'm not going to go five bucket list, but if I if I run through some of my favorite links well, courses, you know, I'll, I'll stay out of Ireland. So, you know. But actually, actually, maybe what do you look for in in your favorite golf courses? As a as a as a different question, and we then get on to your favorite links. Yeah, courses. I don't. What do I look for? In my I, I I look for a sense of um, place, a sense of itself, right? Um, mm. In other words, it has to feel completely at one with where it is. Variety is is key, um, but consistency for me is also um, is also key. I I like the elegance when it comes to Linksland. I tend to like the ele- so you've got the huge dunes at uh, at Carn. Magnificent, wonderful. But I like the elegance of um, a port rush where you have wonderful fairway um, undulations with kind of mid-level dunes. You know, there's just it's just a very elegant golf course. So I like elegant links courses. I think Royal St. George's is another example, Sandwich. And I think Dornick is another example. Um, then of the smaller ones, I, I love a course like and you could call this one of my bucket list. I, I love, of course, like Macrahanish. You know, you're at the end of nowhere and you're down there and it's it's just wonderful to to, to play. So, the, you know, those kind of links, links courses, I, I, I really enjoy. The, the elegance of those undulations. Finally, uh, our last question. You might recommend two golf books that could augment any golf tragics personal golf library. <laughs> well, the the... If you go, if you want to be a proper golf architecture tragic, then you go back to those 1920s books um, by McDonald or McKenzie, you know, which are really a cornerstone of any golf designer's um, library. But my favorite one, and again, because he probably inspired me more than any other architect, is Tom Simpson. So Simpson and Weatherhead's The Architectural Side of Golf is super. It's got Simpson sketches in it. It's got his real strategic thinking, um, the way he lays out golf holes. And, you know, he was a character, Tom Simpson, with his Rolls Royce. Surely the second book is probably Brendan Cashel's The History of Port Marnock Golf Club. Well, I would recommend that to anyone. It's a most wonderful achievement by Brendan. Obviously, it's quite niche. You have to be in, interested in, in Port Marnock, but it's it gives a load of great photographs and, and detail. Available to purchase through Francis uh, Francis shop Francis's oh, pro shop. It is indeed, yeah, it is indeed. So yeah, yeah, that's obviously good. I I think 
we'll go with a much more basic one for those who are, are just kind of dipping their toes in into golf course architecture is the the world atlas of golf that was what got so many people into golf design particularly the last the last uh, revision which has the silver cover which was by different editors uh, and and contributors but it, it really it just shows you right around the globe a bunch of great classic golf courses it has you know diagrams of routing maps it gives you a little bit about strategic golf versus the history of golf design um and it's a real excellent entry point to get people interested in golf courses i would imagine most people listen to this are well beyond that in fairness but um it's for, for a lot of people it's a great entry point so i just from a listener's perspective the last half uh, sorry hour or so has motivated the listener to explore how they might revise, redesign, or rebuild their golf course. How can interested parties make contact with Macintosh Design? I'm quite low profile, Shane. Um, I don't have uh, much of an online presence. But Still no online presence? Still no online presence. They can they can get me through you or macintosh.golf okay. at gmail.com. Excellent. Well, look, Ali, as usual, I'm very grateful for share uh, for you sharing some of your very valuable time and expertise this evening it was great learning more about eddie hackers an undoubted candidate for the title of father of golf course architecture in ireland go easy and thank you thanks very much shane thanks for having me again all the best see you many thanks for tuning in as usual you can find us online at firmandfast.golf or on twitter at firmandfastgolf please continue to like subscribe and comment it really is appreciated Until the next time, happy golfing.